Welcome back to Magic Valley this morning. Brian Hyde filling in for Bill Colley on News Radio 96 1 FM, 1310 KLIX, at NewsRadio1310.com. I want you to meet a friend of mine. I'm going to bring him on the telephone here with me. This is Eric Peters from EricPetersAutos.com. Eric, how are you today? Well, I'm good, Brian. I'm trying not to be angry at being told I'm not allowed to hate. <laughs> Well, now uh, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to dive into that. Uh, I, actually, I saw your your article about uh, the freedom to hate. And before we get to that, Eric, for, there, there's a lot of folks who are meeting you for the first time. Um, I have followed your writing for many many years, but for those who are hearing about Eric Peters and Eric Peters Autos, tell us just a little bit about uh, who you are, about what you do. Well, should I start with I'm a kook like Jay Google Flintstone? I'll, I'll <laughs> I'm kind of the libertarian car guy. That's my handle and moniker. I, I write about cars, but I also write about issues that I think are very much intertwined with cars, particularly the freedom to move about uh, and everything that's uh, subsumed under that and uh, implied by that. So it, 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 it ends up with me writing about politics and current events uh, and all of the things that uh, we're losing in this country, including the freedom to hate people who uh, do not have our best interests at heart. Well, so let's, uh, let's go ahead and dive into that. In particular, mm-hmm. you were pointing out that uh, um, the the freedom to hate isn't exactly. I mean, it's it's not as nefarious as it sounds. It's not like, a, hey, that sounds like a good slogan for our clan meeting. By gosh, <laughs> um, talk sure. to talk to me about uh, about what what sparked uh, this particular essay. Well, what sparked it was the comments made by Nikki Haley, who is ostensibly a Republican and a conservative, echoing the language of the left, which characterizes as hateful. Uh, anything that disagrees with what the left says. You know, if you question a policy of the left, well, obviously it's not just that you have legitimate questions. Even if you have the the right and truth on your side, you're hateful. So it's a smear word. It's a way to shut people up, uh, to imply that they're cretinous, morally speaking, because they disagree with you without admitting, hey, this person just disagrees with me. And it was very depressing. Uh, It made me angry to hear uh, a Republican, a conservative, agreeing with the left, uh, essentially, and saying that while you have a right to free speech, you don't have a right to hate. Now, she was talking specifically about what's going on over in the Middle East with regard to Hamas and so on. And to be clear, uh, I think that those those Hamas people are creeping as awful folks. But uh, the problem here that I see is that she is allowing this idea that the left has been propagating, that if you have a heretical point of view, if you have a question, if you criticize, if you say something, that they don't like, then it's to be dismissed out of hand as hateful. And I think that's a very dangerous road to go down. Oh, I would agree. Joseph Sobrand used to write about um, the unspecified predicate, and, and he used hate yeah. as an example and, and said, look, everybody knows hate must mean something really bad, but just to be accused of it doesn't really clarify what exactly it is that you're accused of. All we know is, well, it's something pretty bad, so uh, therefore we should probably be on board. But in sure. this case, an accusation carries the weight of a conviction. Absolutely. You know, we all lived through that over the course of the past three years when they would style anybody who disagreed with the narrative having to do with the pandemic as a purveyor of misinformation and with the implication that you're a bad person. Uh, and then, you know, if they really wanted to notch that, you know, double down on that, they would call you hateful uh, for, for criticizing masking or criticizing Dr. Fauci. And that kind of wheels us around to the whole business of whether it's legitimate to hate. And I think sometimes it is. 
is it uh, is it legitimate to hate a malicious person who wishes you ill and causes harm? I think it is. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. In fact, I think it's morally healthy to hate evil people. Interesting. I, I got to think about this a little bit just because um, I have uh, there, there have been times where I've been like, you know what? There are some things for which our flame of hatred should burn very brightly indeed. But unfortunately for me personally, that, that sometimes leads me into a place where I start defining myself by it. I know that's not what you're advocating. I'm just saying you know, I, actually, I approach that with, with great caution. You know, I, I want to modify my statement a little bit because I think you're right. Uh, let's put it this way. I hate lies. How about that? Oh, I can agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with hating lies and uh, to, to state that uh, firmly and manfully, uh, even if you're not a man, if you're a woman, you know, just say, look, if you if you if you lie, that's despicable and uh, you ought not to be doing that. In fact, you ought to be censured for doing it. And what these people on the left and unfortunately, a lot of people in the Republican Party are essentially saying is, no, that's not OK. You know, somehow it's uh, it's illegitimate to question. Uh, to, to be heterodox rather than orthodox. Uh, that makes you a hateful person. And this is the sort of tactic that they used in the totalitarian societies like the old Soviet Union and, of course, Nazi Germany, you know, where they would characterize and frame uh, anybody who questioned anything as being a moral defective. And, you know, once you frame somebody as a moral defective, then it becomes acceptable to visit horrible punishment on them, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. No, I think your, your warning is, is well taken. And Nikki Haley of all people. I mean, she's a former UN ambassador, but yep. I, I I would be hard-pressed to find anyone among the Republican ranks who seems more eager to, to go to war. Maybe Bill Kristol, but uh, then again, I don't think he was a UN ambassador. No, uh, or Lindsey Graham. And all of these people, there's something, I don't know, there's something very off-putting. I'm sure people listening to this will agree with me, a lot of them, uh, about the glibness, uh, the ease with which some of these people advocate for violence, which, of course, won't affect them directly. They seem to be quite okay uh, with advocating for policies that will result in other people's kids being sent to get mauled and killed uh, in some conflict somewhere, which they don't have any skin in that game. And, and there, there's, a, there's a despicability a despicability about that. I understand that sometimes it's necessary to do hard things, but to be so eager to uh, to commit to these sorts of things, it, it bothers me at a, at a really gut instinctive level. Talk to me about, uh, you know, along with the word hate, it seems like we hear a lot of the word anti-Semitism today. And it's yeah. kind of become a catch-all as well. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially become a functional synonym for racism, you know, which is a cat call now. You know, it's it's almost it's extraordinarily rare that we have to deal with people wearing white suits you know, with, with hooded capes and all of that. Actual racists, I mean. Uh, instead, that term of opprobrium is leveled at somebody who says, you know, I think it's a bad idea uh, to deny qualified applicants to college admission because their skin color is the wrong color, right? I mean, that, that's what makes you a racist now, that sort of thing. And with regard to anti-Semitism, uh, it's not, oh, this person is actually a Nazi and, and advocates that Jewish people be treated horribly and, and so on. It's, you know, hey, I've got some questions about, you know, Bibi Netanyahu seems like he's a pretty corrupt guy because he's done X, Y, and Z. He's trying to suspend the, effectively suspend the power of the, the, the courts in Israel to question any actions of the government. If you, if you dare to say something like that, then you get accused of being anti-Semitic. And it's just, it, it's obnoxious, but at the same time, it also, I think, in the long term is going to redound against the people who do it, just in the same way that racism has lost its punch. It's tiresome. You know, everybody's a racist now. If you oh, happen yeah. to be white, you're, ipso facto, you're white, so you're a racist. It's, it's, it's made people very cynical, and it's taken away 
the, the, you know, the righteous power of those words when they were applied legitimately to people who actually were those things. Yeah, it's, it's the Article 58 of modern thinking, right? The, the anti-Soviet activities thing. It's the catch-all. Yeah. Well, Mr. Yeah. Hyde, we had to send you to the gulag because you have been accused of hate or you've been accused of anti-Semitism. Yep, and I think that you know, if, if I were Jewish, I would be offended by it because it's it's cheapening the dialogue, uh, you know, to accuse somebody who has honest, legitimate questions about policy and who has nothing against Jewish people of being an anti-Semite. It cheapens uh, the the puissance, the power of the word uh, that it once had when it was once clearly understood that meant somebody who liked Adolf Hitler, you know, and was a fan of pogroms and a fan of making people wear a yellow star and marginalizing them. And that's just not the case anymore. Here, here. So, um, let me let's. We've got about a minute and a half before we have to go to break here. But uh, Eric, mm-hmm. when people start wielding these accusations of hate, or, or we start hearing people, you know, say, "Oh, that sounds kind of anti-Semitic," you know, where you're not uh, full-throatedly, I stand with Israel here. Um, how do you handle stuff like that? How? What's a good way that we can handle it when someone starts that manipulation by applying labels? Well, my policy is to simply not accept it and to not be cowed by it. You know what they're counting on is for you to cringe and, and, and act as if you actually were guilty of what they are implying that you are. Well, don't accept that burden because you're not. Continue to pursue the question that you've got. If the question is legitimate, it will stand on its own. It will be clear that what you're talking about has nothing to do with hate, got nothing to do with being a racist or an anti-Semitic. It's just, hey, I've got a question about this particular policy. Yeah, I, I wonder if sometimes it isn't productive to, to maybe call people out on it when someone says, well, you know, you're espousing hate. Ask them, mm-hmm. define exactly for me what I am doing or what I am espousing that constitutes that and hold them to their definition. I mean, it's it's going to make them uncomfortable. They're going to think you're being, you know, hostile, but w- what they're accusing you of isn't exactly nice either, now is it? No, and they're going to double down on it, and it'll just make them look more hysterical and deranged, which is just what they are, in addition to being tyrannical. All right, again, we're talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. I'm Brian Hyde filling in for Bill Colley on Magic Valley this morning. Um, if you want to check out Eric's uh, website, you'll find some great stuff there. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll come back and continue our conversation with him right after this. Twenty-three degrees at seven twenty-one. This is Magic Valley this morning. Brian Hyde filling in for Bill Colley. My guest is Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. And if you like things automotive, Eric is is definitely your go-to guy. In fact, Eric, you had a you had a column that was just published today on fast car futility. Let's let's talk about the mm-hmm. need for speed. <laughs> yes, it's a need that I feel often. Uh, and it's nice that we can indulge it even though it's kind of paradoxical in that we have so many cars that are capable of incredibly high speeds and and also great quickness and yet Technically, as a matter of law, it's illegal to use them. I think the, 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 the maximum speed limit in this country is 80 miles an hour in some parts of Texas, I think. And for the most part, it's 70 to 75. And that's something that pretty much any 70s-era Chevette was capable of doing eventually. Right. Uh, if right. you got there. But, you know, of course, it's kind of wink nod. We all know, okay, well, the law says, but, uh, you know, we, we go ahead and violate the law anyway because we know that most of the time, to use the lingo of the state, we can get away with it. You know, there aren't cops everywhere, and if you have a radar detector and good situational awareness, you can reduce your risk of getting a ticket. So, you know, we use the cars uh, for the purpose that they were designed for. But now, can you imagine a scenario in which it became impossible to get away with it? 
there wouldn't be, there's not going to be a cop on every corner, but there'll be one embedded in your car in the form of technology that makes it impossible for you to drive any faster than whatever the speed limit is and alerts the insurance mafia and the government to every instance of your doing it. And that sort of thing is already in progress uh, for people listening to this who may not be aware of it. Uh, most new cars have some form of that kind of technology embedded in them. And that's picking up pace. And the part of it that's most interesting to me um, pertains to electric cars, because electric cars tout their speed capability specifically. And they do that uh, to kind of get people's minds off of the problem of range and recharge. Right. So, hey, at least I can go really quickly and very fast. But what point will there be in owning one of these electric cars when you can't drive it any faster than a 70s era Chevette? That's going to be a very interesting thing to see play out. No, it's it's true. And you you and I were having this conversation actually a couple of weeks ago. Uh, one of the crazy things about uh, today's cars is uh, you can exceed the speed limit without ever feeling like you did. I mean, with with you know six yeah. or eight speed automatic transmissions or ten speed, um, it shifts gears so smoothly and so efficiently. You're doing seventy miles an hour before you can blink. Yeah, it's not just the power; it's the sophistication of the suspensions. You know. Uh, if you went back to the 70s, a typical car had a truck-type suspension. It had leaf springs. It had, uh, in the back, a solid axle, uh, very primitive. And uh, you felt it when you were going 70. You know, generally, the car would be vibrating, and you know, there would be wind noise. And you know, it kind of gave you, hey, you know, I'm going fast enough. I shouldn't be going any faster. But now uh, cars have suspensions that are as good or better than some of the all-out race cars uh, of the 70s and 80s. Uh, along with really incredible ride quality and very quiet ride because they're so well insulated. So unless you're driving well over 100 miles an hour, it doesn't feel like you're going very fast at all, and that's one of the reasons why people drive so fast. So it's not that we're a bunch of scofflaws in need of a firmer hand, you know, to guide us in our wayward uh, existence? Well, you know, I would say if it was safe and as a matter of law it was considered that implicitly, to drive 70 miles an hour on a highway in 1970, you know, when the typical car had drum brakes, uh, it had uh, biased tires instead of radials, and uh, all the rest of that. If it was safe to drive a 1970s-era car 70 miles an hour, then I think it's probably a fair thing to say that it's safe to drive 80 in a car that's 50 years newer with all of the advancements of the past 50 years. No, it's a, it's a good point. You point out, too, in your article that you know, you don't have to even exceed the speed limit. If, uh, if for instance, you have a car like a, a Corvette or a Tesla that, uh, shall we say, can get up to highway speed quickly, mm -hmm. if yep. you get up to speed quickly enough uh, and, a, and a police officer happens to be around, they may still hand you a ticket simply for, for getting there in a less than tepid manner. Yeah, they, you know, that, that constitutes aggressive and or reckless driving. And the real danger is something that's already in place. And people who are listening who are or know People who drive commercially will be very familiar with what I'm about to say, which is that uh, commercial vehicles, you know, trucks, generally delivery vehicles, over-the-road trucks, and so on, their speed, it's not just their speed that's monitored, it's how rapidly the vehicle is accelerated, uh, whether it is braked, as they put it, aggressively, and so on. And this all happens in real time. Uh, and this telemetry is transmitted back to the corporate HQ, and then the driver uh, is punished or fired, you know, if, if his driving is considered overly aggressive as defined by such, such parameters. And that kind of thing is going to come to cars. In fact, it already is. You may have seen commercials from insurance companies like Progressive that offer to give you a discount, cough, cough, wink, wink, <laughs> if you put their little electronic dongle into your OBD port in the car 
so that they can keep track of how you drive. And it's not just the speed that they're keeping track of. You know, they can tell because the car is computerized and all this data is recorded uh, how hard you push down on the gas pedal, how hard you push down on the brake, G-forces and things of that nature. And they will use that to jack up your premiums. Right now it's still voluntary, but you bet your bippy they want it to be mandatory. So talk to me about intelligent speed assistance. I understand this is a feature that is finding its way into new cars. Yeah, it's already in most new cars. It's mandated in Europe, and it's not about assisting you to do anything. It's about controlling you. You know, they market it as something, oh, you know, you're not aware of what the speed limit is. So, you know, you look at your dashboard, and there's a little icon in the dash that looks just like a speed limit sign. Whatever the speed limit is on the road you happen to be on, the vehicle knows it because of the GPS. And if you drive any faster, then what happens is that the sign, which is normally uh, white with black letters like you would see on the side of the road, flashes red to let you know that you're driving faster than the speed limit. Well, in Europe, they've enabled the additional feature, which is that the car will actually push back against the throttle to, to make you drive the speed limit. And it's just a matter of enabling that portion of the software that's already embedded in the car to do exactly the same thing here. Amazing. You you ask the question in the article, will people willingly pay Corvette money to drive what amounts to a Chevette? I used to joke right. around. We, my wife and I, when we were newlyweds, had an 89 Chevette. And I would joke around to people, yeah, I've got a vet. You know, but yeah. it was a vet that would barely do 70 miles an hour downhill. Yeah. You know, people sometimes used to mock bodybuilders because, you know, you've got this guy who's up there on the stage all oiled up and he's you know, flexing his biceps and heaving his chest and showing you how big he is and everything. But what's the point? I mean, he's not doing anything with those muscles. He's not performing any useful work. He's not participating in an athletic contest. It's all for show. And in a way, that's what's going to happen, I think, with these, you know, putatively fast cars, a Corvette that has this snorting engine and, you know, a lot of power. And yeah, it could go 180, 190 miles an hour, but the technology won't let you do it. So you're driving effectively a very pretty Chevette. A very expensive, pretty Chevette. Right. It's, well, and as, as you allude to in the article, it's, it's kind of, it becomes a very expensive codpiece at that point. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. And, and it's going to have a ramification, though, I think. You know, again, to get back to this electric car thing, you know, they are going to take away from the electric car the one thing that objectively they can present as uh, a desirable quality. You know, the fact that because electric motors produce so much torque, uh, so quickly, the electric car can accelerate phenomenally quickly. You know, I test drive new cars, so I've experienced it myself, and that's a nice sell. But if you take that away from people, then what else have you got to sell? Oh, let's see, the car costs twice as much. Uh, it only goes about half as far, and it takes five times as long for me to get it going again. Yeah, I really want to buy that. Okay, again, we're talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, uh, thanks for, for making the acquaintance of the uh, Magic Valley This Morning audience, and let's talk again soon. Absolutely, Brian. Thank you for having me. For, for those who don't know, uh, Jeffrey Einstein is uh, is the author of the Quality of Life Resistance Movement Substack. And, and Jeff, before we go there, we've got to get a little bit of background about who you are and, and the, the position of mild authority from which you are speaking as, as a digital apostate. Tell us just a little bit about uh, your life path up to this point. Uh, well, I, you know, I, I was, uh, I was, I lived... Up until about five years ago, I live now in South Florida, but up until that time, for the previous 40 years or so, I lived in uh, in Manhattan and uh, other parts of New York City, uh, where in, 19, in the mid-1980s, uh, because of this, primarily because of my, my last name, 
I, uh, I authored the first major how-to book series on personal computers called Einstein's Computer Guides. And then uh, later that same year, co-founded what became the first digital advertising agency in the country. Uh, so that's my essential digital pedigree in a nutshell. And I was basically the, uh, the uh, some years later, the New York Times referred to me as the, as the Jagger of digital media. And at first I thought it was a compliment and then I thought about it a little longer and it occurred to me that maybe I was just the old ugly white guy in, a, in an industry full of really looking young people. Um, but anyway, I, at, around the turn of the uh, late 1990s, turn of the 21st century, I started having second thoughts about the uh, digital revolution and I started thinking about and considering the digital downsides uh, not least among them what I identified as a default, basically a state-sponsored default addiction to all things media and all things digital uh, as the primary social condition leading into the 21st century. Needless to say, that didn't sit well with my colleagues in the digital media industry, and, uh, and I became a bit of an apostate and an outcast at that point in time and basically went on the road and, and uh, started writing about, uh, about the digital downside, in particular the, what I saw as this default, uh, default addiction, what happens to us as a society and as individuals when addiction becomes the rule rather than the exception. Now, I want to point out here right at the very beginning, the, the things that, uh, that Jeff stands for include faith, family, community, and country. And, and you, you talk a little bit about quality of life. Maybe it would be helpful. Let's, let's get a working definition. When we talk quality of life, what does that mean? What, what do we refer to? I always say that the quality of life is a reflection of how and where and with whom we spend our, we invest our time and our faith and our money. Okay. Um, the, the ancient Vedic seers, 4,000 years ago, the predecessors to the Ayurvedics, uh, observed once that we have a tendency to become our attention. That wherever we turn our attention for a protracted period of time is essentially what we become. That's one of the reasons why we become a nation of media addicts and digital addicts, because that's why we spend 10 to 15 hours a day on average every day. That's how we spend our time. That's what we spend our money on. And that's where we're investing our faith in the new religions of digital technology. Um, so quality of life, basically, the question is, you know, what do we do to declaw and reclaim the quality of life in what I saw in the early 21st century as a confluence of runaway digital scale, in other words, the institutionalization of all our lives. Suddenly, the number of institutional relationships in our lives started to outnumber the, 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 the number of personal relationships in our lives. And you can see that really, really starkly in evidence on your own smartphone. Just take a look at the number of apps on your phone. Each app on your phone represents a relationship with an institution that probably didn't have, wasn't in your life 15 or 20 years ago before you got a smartphone. So our lives have become institutionalized due to this runaway digital scale. And the other counterpart of that is the default addiction. So in the confluence of those two things, the, and this is both in the early 21st century, really around 2003, 2005, around that time, 
uh, in the confluence of those two things, runaway digital scale and the institutionalization of our lives and this default media addiction, we started to see the decline in the quality of our lives across all metrics, financial, spiritual, social, all of our, all those things that can, that all the meaningful rituals that once held our lives together and our societies and communities and families together like social glue were suddenly coming unraveled as the, as the uh, addictions, as the rituals, the mindless rituals of our addictions and obsessions started to replace the meaningful rituals in our lives like family dinner table and the Sabbath day of rest. Nice. I know one thing that you point out here is as evidence of the problem is uh, here we have lim- all but limitless access to everything worth knowing about um, financial success, health and nutrition, keys to personal empowerment. And at the same time, we find ourselves poorer, deeper in debt, morbidly obese, uh, chronic lifestyle related diseases abound. We're addicted to just about everything. We're spiritually bereft, time starved, sleep deprived, anxious, fearful. You know, with with all those uh, um, those uh, resources there at our fingertips, it, it would appear we're not making very good use of them. No, the real question is what what, what went wrong? <laughs> well, right. I think one of the uh, one of the uh, corresponding attributes to runaway digital scale is unmanageable complexity. And for anyone who's ever been in AA or any other twelve step group uh, for any kind of addiction or obsession. One of the things that is talked about on a fairly frequent basis is the unmanageable complexity of our lives as we sink into addiction. And basically that's the that's reflected in an observation made back in the 1960s by the one of the original media ecologists, media ecology is the study of how media systems affect our lives and our in our and our society. Um, by a a gentleman named Marshall McLuhan, who was the the original popular media ecologist back in the 1960s. And he had uh, noted that in his four laws of media, that one of them he called the law of reverse. And the law of reverse is what happens when complex systems get pushed to extreme and start to exhibit opposite tendencies. So one great example of that is all the things you just mentioned. All the things that were, all these systems that were designed to liberate us and democratize our environment suddenly get pushed to extreme and begin operating in reverse. So the financial markets, the financial technologies, our own investment platforms, everything that happened in the late 1990s and early 21st century that permitted individual investors like you and me basically to play with the big boys on Wall Street suddenly turned against us when the stock markets crashed and we started to notice that all of our wealth was traveling upstream to the guys who already had way too much power and way too much wealth. Same things happened with uh, the democratization of media, which was one of the promises of the dot-com era back in the late 1990s, that soon everyone would be able to own their own printing press, which is certainly the case in, in, in certain regards. And Substack is a good example of that. Anybody like you or I or anybody else can go on Substack and start publishing their own work. Um, but at the end of the day, what that really does more than anything else is consolidate power and wealth for guys who already have more too much power and wealth. 
the publishing models of Facebook, which is essentially a published self-publishing model, and uh, and other social media basically turned against us once they reached a certain scale and started stealing. Now they're now they're censorious. Now they're the uh, they're anti-free speech platforms. Now the social media is a, it is a sickness. It's an illness um, that afflicts young people in particular especially young girls, teenage girls, and it, it creates more havoc on our societies, our families, and our communities, um, and it has essentially turned against us. Another example of something that grows to scale, a complex system that gets pushed to extreme, and there are simpler examples of that. Look back at the, in, in the 1950s when Eisenhower built the interstate highway system uh, from coast to coast, he basically was building it in response to the emergence of Detroit after World War II as the world's preeminent manufacturing power, and we just simply needed a place to put three million new cars every year. So we built the interstate highway system, which was great for a while. For a couple of generations, we had the Great American Open Road, but now the Great American Open Road fade out, fade back in. You know, three generations later is a parking lot because there are so many cars. Right. Talk to me about Huxwell. This is this is a word that people will they, they should add to their lexicon, but um, it's it's a combination of a couple other words that I know are on a lot of people's minds right now. Huxwell is is a, a term that I I basically invented to explain the rise of a dystopian twenty first century state. That's essentially a combination of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, which is a book about a society, an authoritarian society ruled by state-sanctioned addiction. Everybody in Brave, all the citizens of the Brave New World are ruled by Soma, which is their opiate, and sex and endless entertainment. So people are controlled not by the things they fear, but by the things they love and invite into their homes. And that's, that's the societal norm. That's how they control people in Brave New World. That is, that's the compliance mechanism that makes people pliable and compliant and because they, they have no reason to burn or no reason to rise up in dissent because they have everything that they really want and their lives are run by dopamine rushes in their own, between their own ears 24-7. Um, the other dystopian vision from the 20th century, great dystopian, literary dystopian vision, was George Orwell's Big Brother. Big Brother was about an opposite kind of tyranny and authoritarian dystopia. That was a, a vision of a society where people were controlled not by the things they loved, like Brave New World, but by the things they feared. And by linguistic mind control and language mind control, and uh, basically what they did was they controlled what you could say and how you could say it so that the, the, the intent was eventually to eliminate the possibility of having any thoughts that would end up in dissent. So those two dystopian visions are pretty much the George Orwell 1984 vision is the enforcement mechanism for the Brave New World Aldous Huxleyan, the compliance mechanism. So those two things together, add them together, and you get Huxwell, which in a nutshell I, I define as a, um, just a, 
21st century totalitarian dystopian that combines the compliance mechanism of state-sponsored default addiction, borrowed from Algis Huxley's Brave New World, with the enforcement mechanisms of 24-7 surveillance, linguistic thought control, and, uh, and the institutional tyranny of state-manufactured hatred and fear borrowed from George Orwell's 1984. Put them together, you got Huxwell. And that's what we have now. And it seems the, the, the best thing that I can say about uh, about this this Huxwell mindset that, that's being uh, created and, and uh, inculcated by the powers that be is a person can choose not to consume that content, but most of us don't. I mean, most of us choose yeah. to go ahead and, ah, just give me another handful. I'll just keep, you know, eating it like popcorn. That's the addiction mechanism. That's the compliance mechanism at work. The addiction keeps us coming back for more. The first freedom that addiction always steals from us is the freedom to walk away. And it's the most fundamental freedom. It precedes freedom of religion. It precedes freedom of speech. It precedes freedom enumerated in the First Amendment. The freedom to walk away is our most fundamental freedom, and that's the first freedom clobbered by addiction. It doesn't mean you can't, because thousands of people recover from addiction each and every day and choose nevertheless to walk away. And it's a liberating thing when they do. So at some point in time, in order for us to deal, and that's the first of my of the three calls to action that you alluded to earlier, um, there, there are basically three of them. The very first one of them is the, is the need to turn away from distraction and to turn our attention instead to those things that promote and protect the quality of life, namely our faith, our families, and our communities. We, we've got a break coming up here in just about 30 seconds, but why don't more people take advantage of that opportunity to turn away from those distractions? Because it's a really hard thing to do. Anybody who's been addicted to any drug, and, and by the way, addiction is never about the narcotic. Addiction is always about the behavior. Narcotics come and go, but addictive behavior is always the same. So media addicts behave the same way as heroin addicts who behave the same way as sex addicts who behave the same way as cocaine addicts. It's always about the behavior. It's the behaviors that trigger the dopamine that rewire our minds and turn us the repeated behaviors that turn us into addicts. Okay, uh, hold, it's all, hold that it's just thought. a hard thing to do. Hold that thought. Jeff Einstein is my guest. We're talking about uh, the quality of life resistance movement. I'll give you a web address when we come back. We'll pay a couple of bills and be back in just a few moments on Magic Valley this morning. Welcome back to Magic Valley this morning. Brian Hyde sitting in for Bill Colley. I am joined on the phone by my guest, Jeffrey Einstein. He is the uh, creator of the uh, resistance, or sorry, the quality of life resistance substack. Pretty easy to find. Uh, Jeff, I wanted to talk about some specific things, the tools that are available for, for people who want to break this this digital addiction. And, and I hope people don't feel singled out because I think... You know, our whole society, to some degree, has has uh, been on the receiving end of this addiction. Uh, yeah, this is uh, you know it's not as as outwardly visible as a media addict. You're probably not as in dire straits as you would be as a fentanyl or a heroin addict. 
Um, but over time, if you stop and think about it, the downside of a sedentary lifestyle where we're consuming media 10 to 15 hours a day, the social isolation, the emotional distress, uh, and all these things have downstream uh, ramifications in terms of our, of our um, what I call the four basic needs, which are spiritual in order are spiritual, social, emotional, and physical. So think of them as a river flowing downstream, that if we, if our spiritual life is in tatters or non-existent, or we're worshiping at the altars of Google and Facebook instead of something more meaningful, then that's going to basically carry some, some of our spiritual garbage downstream in the effluence and it will hook up with uh, the social isolation because of social media and all the time we spend by ourselves with our faces stuck in, in, stream, in screens instead of with our families and with our friends and colleagues. And that will hook up with more, uh, more social, more, more toxic garbage flowing downstream to our emotional well-being, which is suddenly in a state of distress as we encounter with the downstream effluence of our spiritual failures and our social failures. Suddenly we're dealing with all the emotional consequences of that, which finally all wind up and manifest in our physical well-being. So we're stressed out, we're sleep-deprived, we're obese, and we have all these opportunistic diseases that afflict us as a result of decades of spiritual, social, emotional distress. Suddenly they all wind up in our bodies and we feel like crap. And we die young and we die of, of you know, autoimmune and lifestyle-related diseases that simply didn't exist in the capacity or volume that they, you know, three generations ago that they do now. Now you point out so, that the, the hardest part is taking those first initial steps to, yes. to push back against this. Talk to yeah. me about, about what you recommend as, as, a, as a good starting place. I have three tools, basically, two of which I invented back in the mid-1990s, and the third of which I completed in the, uh, in the around 2004, 2005, 15, 18 years ago, thereabouts. Um, and there are tools that are designed to address the three calls to action, which one, one I already mentioned, that we need to turn away from distraction and turn our attention to the things that confer spiritual, social, emotional, and, qual and physical quality in our lives. And the second one is the need to restore meaningful ritual as the key to individual responsibility and lifestyle moderation. We have to step back from this lifestyle of excess, which is basically the basic definition of an addicted lifestyle is a lifestyle of excess. You're addicted to something and you consume it in excess to the detriment of everything else. And lifestyle moderation is the only statistically viable antidote to addiction. You know, 12-step so groups work for certain people and works for a certain small, statistically small number of people. I always tell people to do exactly what works for them. And don't worry about what anybody else says. Just do what works for you. Uh, but statistically, the only real viable antidote to addiction is, mod is lifestyle moderation. And that's how all recovery programs work. They all work the same way. They have different techniques. But in the end of the day, they all seek to replace the rituals 
of our backwards engineer our addictions. We become addicts when the, when the rituals of our mindless rituals of our addictions and obsessions outnumber and replace the meaningful rituals in our lives, the ones that hold our our uh, our spiritual, social, emotional, and physical lives together, like in family dinner table again, and in the Sabbath day of rest. Um, and then the third call to action is we need to combat the tyrannies of digital scale and run away institutional power, and you do that by tur- a return to local autonomy in our own communities. That's the best way to do it. So in order to get from here to there, as a first place to start, I devise these tools, the Quality of Life Toolkit, which you can find on the Quality of Life Resistance Movement. And it consists of three tools, each of which is designed to address those three calls to action. The first one is called My Ritual Inventory, and that's the best way to begin your journey uh, and, and to identify, maintain, and supplement the meaningful rituals in our lives, those that promote and protect our spiritual, social, emotional and physical well-being, and what it does is it helps you gently reverse the process of addiction over time to retreat slowly and gradually over time from behavioral excess and to restore moderation, again, as the only statistically viable response to default addiction. And when it's invoked as a three-minute ritual each morning, my ritual inventory becomes a ritual in and of itself and it becomes a sheer gratitude engine and, then, and a non-sectarian prayer of sorts. It can be a, you know, it can be a traditional religious prayer if you want, but it works also for people who don't have faith in a higher power or, or look elsewhere for faith in a higher power. Okay. Uh, so my ritual inventory is where you would start to withdraw from the addiction. And it is something you do over a period of a few months. It takes you only... First time you do it, it takes about an hour. But if you do it for three minutes each and every day, and it's in its condensed version, it takes over the next three months, you will gently begin to replace the mindless rituals of your obsessions, addictions, with more meaningful ritual in your life. Jeff, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, you're very welcome. It was a great pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me.